Woohoo, peeps! This is part five of the McDonald case, and he is testifying to the grand jury. If you don't know what the hell I'm talking about, you have missed the other four episodes in the series. Let's just get things rolling with some Linda Ronstadt. Alright, we are once again quoting from Fatal Vision. At 1 o'clock in the afternoon of Monday, August 12, 1974, Jeffrey McDonald entered the grand jury room. He was alone. In accordance with grand jury procedure, not even his own lawyer was permitted to be present. There were no cameras. There was no music. There was no applause. For an audience, there was only Victor Warheide, an assistant from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Raleigh, a court reporter, and the 23 citizens of North Carolina who had been chosen at random to serve as grand jurors. It's a long way indeed from Dick Cabot. En route to his grand jury appearance, Jeffrey McDonald had made some notes to himself on a right nice wide-ruled theme book, which he had purchased for 59 cents. The first notes concerned the opening statement he wanted to make. Soberness, he wrote at the top of the page. Willingness to cooperate. Then he wrote, Memory will try to get details, but painful experience. Painful because birthdays, anniversary dates, anniversary of February 17th, sleeplessness, and pain. Once being accused, then exonerated totally, and now, question mark, accused because of army reinvestigation. On the next page, he wrote, Not easy to talk about it, and what was, apparently, a line he intended to deliver. Bear with me while I try my best. MacDonald made it plain from the start that he was not pleased to have been summoned but the tone of anguish which he had wanted to project somehow became twisted into something much closer to hostility. This is not easy for me to appear here, he said. You know, this is my family I lost. I get accused of it. They don't even interview me. They don't even interview me for six weeks. Although I go to their office and ask, don't you have any questions? Don't you want to talk to me? No, 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 we have suspects in custody. Six weeks go by, 14 MPs tramping through the house. Then I have to spend four years reliving this, and now I'm back here in 1974. Captain MacDonald, Victor Warheide said, You have complained, Dr. MacDonald, Mr. Warheide. Dr. MacDonald, you have complained. I asked for a civilian reinvestigation in 1970. The Army reinvestigated itself. You could never reconstruct the initial hour of that crime scene. Dr. MacDonald, we are going to do the best we can. And all I am asking you is your voluntary cooperation. I am here to cooperate, sir. I have never refused to talk to anyone. I have never pleaded the Fifth Amendment. Until my lawyers got to me, I offered to give a polygraph examination. At this time, Warheide asked, In aid of the present grand jury investigation, will you agree to submit to a polygraph examination? Let me talk about that with my attorney. Dr. MacDonald, the event happened four years ago. I think you will agree it is high time that this matter was resolved. But resolved in what fashion, sir? To cover up the CID investigation again? I'm not trying to cover up the CID investigation. 
The second army investigation was finished a year and a half ago. This is unbelievable. We are going to go into that, War Heidi said. That is one of the reasons you are here. End quote. Jeff McDonald did initially offer to take a polygraph, but when investigators tried to set up the testing, McDonald told him he decided not to go through with it. Speaking from the hindsight of 50 years, polygraphs can be used as a tool in an investigation. However, they are unreliable in establishing truth. Polygraphs show the physical changes when someone experiences stress. They are based on the assumption that lying causes stress. Some people do not have stress when they lie. Some people have stress for reasons other than lying. Some people are able to mimic that stress even when not stressed, so that the system does not see a change throughout the examination, suggesting that the person is not lying. Ultimately, the test is not a hard science, and results are determined by the examiner and are therefore subject to examiner bias. My point being, whether he took the polygraph or not doesn't necessarily mean anything. The test is fallible. Jeffrey McDonald tested for five days. Warheide's tack was to get McDonald to answer as many questions as possible and then use the testimony of other witnesses to contradict him. Warheide also tried to keep McDonald on his toes by starting a line of questioning, but before that line was complete, changing to a different line of questioning. Warheide gets him to discuss the emergency trip to New York in the fall of 1969. His older brother, Jay, had had a mental break attributed to drugs. Jeffrey left a Green Beret training exercise in Puerto Rico to fly north to take care of things. Three things struck me about this trip. One, is it really that easy to get out of military training, in this case, Green Beret training, even for a family emergency? He is an officer, and the Army does give compassionate leave. It just seems a bit off. Two, why does he need to go in the first place? His sister is not mentioned during this period, so I assume she didn't show. Jeff doesn't have any sort of guardianship over Jay. Their mother is there through the whole ordeal, and Jeffrey doesn't actually seem to do anything while he's there. So why did he go? Number three, he shows up in full Green Beret dress uniform. Now I know that, as his purpose is to reputedly take care of business, the dress was probably the best way to intimidate, show he is not one to be put off or placated. But it really seems excessive for the situation. Jeff also met his old girlfriend, Penny Wells, while back on Long Island. Whether by accident or design, is as yet up in the air. McDonald says no when Warheide asks him if he happened to see Penny while on emergency leave. Warheide also got Jeff to talk about his trip to his brother's local, the shortstop bar, to find Jay's drug supplier. A confrontation which resulted in Jeff throwing a punch at the alleged dealer. Interestingly, McDonald also talks about his searches for the murders and confronting, sometimes also with shoving and punching, drug dealers he'd observe on these searches. Jeff also denies as erroneous the claims that he had women in his BOQ room while he was under house arrest. He also denied having drawn, for investigators, a sketch of 544 Castle Drive as he found it after the attackers left the scene. McDonald is very leery to admit an interview in Newsday was accurate, even though it was his own words. McDonald said to Warheide, But newspaper isn't facts. Jeff blames the Dick Cavett appearance on Congressman Lowenstein. Warheide also asked Jeff about a staycation Jeff takes when he is in high school. I say staycation because I have no other more accurate word to use. And I bring this up not because it is necessarily pertinent to the murders, but it adds a layer of complexity to McDonald's psyche that may help us work out what happened the night of February 16th to 17th, 1970. Quoting from Fatal Vision yet again. During your growing up period, Warheide asked, did you ever live away from home for any extended period of time? Yes, I did. Will you tell us about that? 
I went to Texas when I was a sophomore in high school. I lived down in Baytown for, I believe it was, Thanksgiving to Easter of that year. With whom were you living? Friends of Bob and Marion Stern. I don't know if they were really friends. They were business acquaintances. And the Stearns were friends of your family? Right. What did you say the name of these friends was? Jack Andrews. Was he, you might say, a contemporary of the Stearns and your father? I believe he was a little younger. He was a young engineer for Humble Oil at the time. My father and Bob were older. Did he have a family? He sure did. A wife and kids? A wife and a boy, Jack. A boy, Jack? Was he about your age? Same age. That's why I went down. What was the reason for you leaving home and living in Texas for this period of time? Well, we just met them. Jack Andrews was kind of a free-spending type Texan who at least talked big. And he asked me one time if I would like to come down and meet his son and spend a couple of weeks. So I asked my parents, and they talked it over with Bob and Jack and came back to me and said, if you want to go, fine. And so I left at the end of our football season. Did you transfer to school in Texas? Not initially, because I was just going to stay a couple of weeks. But around Christmas time, they asked me to stay. They thought it would be interesting, and I did too. I was having a blast. So I called home, or wrote home, and they said, sure. So I entered the Robert E. Lee School in Baytown, Texas. Were there any family problems which resulted in you living away from your whole family this rather extended period of time? Not that I'm aware of, MacDonald said. End quote. Now, compare that to the statement given by Jack Andrews Jr. to Pruitt and Kearns about this trip. And this is the boy, a man when this statement is given, Jeff was supposed to be having a great time with on this trip. Quote, He never mentioned his family. It became apparent, rather quickly, that this was something he did not want to talk about. The story was that my father had just invited him down for a visit, but I knew there must have been some other reason behind it. At first, he was just supposed to stay for a couple of weeks. Then, I don't know quite how it happened. After he'd been there those couple of weeks, it just sort of decided that he was going to stay on. It wasn't my doing. Frankly, he and I did not get along well at all. Right from the start, he was always stepping on my toes. A couple of times, it even led to some pushing and shoving. Once, I remember, was kind of serious. We got into a real tussle, right in our family living room. It wasn't too long after that that he went home. The thing I remember most clearly about Jeff is that he was always striving to be the center of attention. And not just in the normal way, you know. The new kid in town showing off. With Jeff, it was like a crusade. He had to try to look the best at everything. The first week or two after somebody would meet him, they'd always be tremendously impressed. But then, with guys especially, it would eventually end up in a clash. Mostly because of the way Jeff had of insisting that every little detail always be just his way. End quote. And on that same note, this is what Mary Andrews says to Pruitt and Kearns during that same tie period. Now, this is the wife of the man who supposedly invited Jack down. Quote, Her husband, she said, had met the McDonald family through his friend and business associate, Bob Stern, while on an extended trip to the Northeast. In the fall of 1958, she had joined him in New York for a time. One evening, she remembered her husband had invited the McDonald boys, Jay and Jeff, to come to New York City for dinner. Unaccompanied by their parents, the two teenage boys had ridden in from Patchogue on the train and dined with the Andrews couple in Greenwich Village. The occasion had proved so festive that after dinner the foursome had gone to a couple of clubs, at one of which a photographer employed by the establishment had taken a commemorative picture. Soon afterward, Mary Andrews had flown back to Baytown. Within a couple of weeks, she was informed by her husband that when he returned, he would be bringing young Jeff McDonald with him for a visit. 
The two of them, Jack Andrews Sr. and the high school sophomore Jeffrey McDonald, left New York on November 11th and drove cross-country to Baytown, which is on the Gulf Coast of Texas. When later asked what had led to this sudden venture, Mary Andrews replied, I think my husband Jack was just attracted to the boy. McDonald's stay in Baytown continued long enough for him to be enrolled in the Robert E. Lee High School there. He stayed right through Christmas, I'm sure, Mary Andrews said. I even remember the present he gave me. He knew I liked glass bottles, so he bought me this tall, thin, blue glass bottle for Christmas. It was really very pretty. Mrs. Andrews said she had the feeling that Jeff never really felt appreciated at home, that he was someone who was really trying very hard to please all the time, that he felt like he didn't fit in in his own family, that everyone liked his brother, Jay, the best. She said she had never discussed it with either of Jeffrey's parents, but frankly, it seemed real strange to me that the family would just let him come down to stay for so long with people they scarcely knew. In fact, I had never met the parents at all, just the boys, that one night at dinner. Mrs. Andrews added that she could not remember precisely what had led to McDonald's departure, but that by March his presence in her home had become a strain, she said. It just got to be an uncomfortable situation. End quote. And lastly, years later, this is what Jeff's mother had to say about the trip to Texas. Quote, she assured me, as I'd known she would, that no family crisis had precipitated his departure. The only problem which arose, she said, was the one which developed because of it. While she viewed the episode in an extremely positive light, an expansion of experience for her teenage son, Jeff's father had taken a darker view. If the kid wants to go, she recalled him saying, that means he doesn't love me. If he likes other people better than the people in his own home, then we've lost him. The longer Jeff had stayed away, the more upset his father had become, growing convinced that he loves them better than us. My husband, said Dorothy MacDonald, was a very charming man as long as there were people around. He possessed great charisma. He loved to stimulate argument. But after everyone else had gone home, a little of the man who felt rejected by circumstances would start to come out. The rejection he had suffered in his early life would start to get to him, and during the late hours of the evening he would become indignant and morose. That his younger son had gone to Texas for a two-week visit and had remained for more than four months became a focal point for his anger and self-pity, but because of his pride he would never, never, never reveal to Jeff any of that sort of feeling. End quote. In listening to these accounts, the question becomes, are these just different points of view from different people of the same event? The normal human brain will take in and remember information as it sees fit. Often, this will result in one person recounting an event in a different manner than another who was at the same event. This is the reason witness testimonies can be so unreliable. But it also could be a deliberate effort to skew the event so that it puts the person recounting the narrative in a positive light. By that I mean, is Jeff lying? I don't know. But what was this whole trip about? I can see kids who are getting along famously convincing one set of parents to host the kid who is the friend over a spring break, or for a month in the summer. Hell, I've even seen this happen for a whole summer. But in that case, the friend was someone my kids had been friends with for years. Anyway, the first weird thing is that this happened over the holidays, Thanksgiving, and more critically, Christmas. And then he stays on and enrolls in school. Also, how did the Andrews convince Jeff to leave? How did the McDonald's convince him to come home? Or did Jeff tire of the whole fancy and just go home on his own? Maddlingly, there is no answer to this. And there's another mystery. One of the things investigators found when searching 544 Castle Drive was a closet full of drugs and medical supplies, including a very large quantity of Thorazine, like 1850 milligram vials. In case you don't know, Thorazine is an antipsychotic. McDonald's explanation was that the neighbors come to him for medical services and he likes to be a Johnny on the spot. 
Let me use my Wayback Translator for that. A Johnny on the spot means a well-prepared Good Samaritan. That much Thorazine is really, really, really prepared, dude. And no one brings this up again. Like, he's got probably a legal closet full of drugs. Where did he get it? What is he doing with it? Who's the Thorazine for? I mean, there is his brother Jay, and he had been hospitalized a few times for mental breaks, and Thorazine was used. But McDonald was in North Carolina, and his brother was in New England. I don't want to irresponsibly throw out a theory, but was the Thorazine for himself? I wouldn't put it past him to be self-medicating for a condition he's hiding from the world. It would explain some things. But we don't know, because no one ever followed up this line of questioning. And now we are back to the peed sheets. War Heidi asked Jeff about problems in the marriage. Jeff says they didn't have any. Quote, Well, did Colette complain about such things as spending money without you consulting her as to what you were spending the money for? Absolutely not. I complain to my wife when she does that. Absolutely not. You bought a stereo in there, didn't you? That's right. How much did it cost? I don't know. It was a patch deal with the color TV, and it was on time, like two years of payments or something, and the total was seven or $800 for the two together, stereo and TV. Did she get upset about that? No, she liked it. It was the first time we had nice possessions. So I take it your testimony is that your marriage was serene, was calm, and there were no problems of any concern. That's right. Nothing that troubled the still waters of your marriage. That's right. How about kids? Any problems with kids? Absolutely not. In some of the material I saw, it indicated that Colette was somewhat concerned about bedwetting. Would you consider bedwetting a problem? No, and she didn't consider it a problem either. The only one that considered that a problem was the CID agent. Absolutely not. The problem was that Christy still had a bottle at two and a half years of age, and I thought Colette should take the bottle away when she goes to sleep. Colette said she didn't mind getting up and getting her a bottle. That doesn't sound like a very big problem. Neither did it sound like the solution Colette had described to her child psychology class on the last night of her life. How about Kimberly? Was she a bedwetter? No. She had long since outgrown that? Right. This, of course, was contrary to what the nurse from San Antonio had said to the CID and re-investigators. End quote. I know all of this seems a bit like a jumble, but in many ways that's how it was presented at the hearing. The more I'm confronted with Jeff McDonald, the more I think he's being deliberately obtuse. He knows that Colette is not happy about the child in the night problems, but he figures if he says there is no problem, there isn't a problem. Because Colette is not happy. She was worried about how long to give Kristen a bottle. She was trying to figure out what to do about the bedwetting. She told her friends. She told her mom. Her class notes are full of Freudian theory about a child's connection to a parent. She brought it up in the class she had the evening before she was murdered. And by the way, in her class, she told them that when Kristen came to their bed in the middle of the night, Jeff had told her to leave the kid and she would have to go sleep on the couch. Now, when I was a young mother, this happened, but I chose to do it that way. Colette, who was not normally an active contributor to her class, posed the question in that session. She did not want to sleep on the sofa. And the consensus of her psychology class was that they should put the child back in her own bed. FYI, Colette's notes also have quite a bit about husbands see their wives after pregnancy, along with words like narcissistic and megalomaniac. War Heidi's tactic of letting McDonald testify to things that he can easily disprove works. He brings in witness after witness that testify that Jeff McDonald is full of shit. Among those who testified was McDonald's former girlfriend, Penny Wells, and her account not only contradicted McDonald's testimony, it suggested, not for the first time, a stalkerish quality to McDonald's MO. Quote, Miss Wells said that at the end of the summer of 1962, the summer after Jeffrey McDonald's freshman year at Princeton, 
the relationship ended because she learned that he had been apparently dating or living with someone over there. Another girl? Right. And this disturbed you? Yes, I approached him and I told him what I'd heard and he denied it and I left. I take it you didn't believe him? No. When was the next time you saw him? It was somewhere around Thanksgiving of that year. I heard he was in town. Somebody warned me that he was in town, looking for me. I was in a restaurant with a girlfriend of mine, and I saw him walking in, so I walked out the other door. He saw me and came over to me, and I just ignored him. I just ignored him and took off. When was the next time you saw him after that? The day before he and Colette got married, he came into the office where I was working and said he was getting married the next day. When I went out to my car, there was a note, and it said something about receiving a gift. Something about your receiving a gift? Right. And in whose handwriting was this note? It was in Jeff's handwriting, and it was signed with his initials. Did you, in fact, receive a gift? It was left in my car. It was a negligee. It was red and black. Red and black? Were those your high school colors? Yes, they were. Do you recall Jeff having made any remark concerning your dressing in red and black? Yes, he did. He liked me in red and black. With the negligee, was there a note? Yes, there was a little saying printed on the note. Sort of a rhyme or verse? Something to refer to the negligee. Now let's go to April of 1964. Colette is in the hospital. She's just given birth to Kimberly. Do you recall hearing from Jeff or seeing him? Yes, I believe it was a phone call that I got, and he asked me to meet him for lunch, that he was in the area. So I said, okay, we had lunch. And he knew I liked clothes, and he asked me about a suede coat, about me wanting one, and I said, No thanks, I can buy my own. It was only a short lunch, and that was it. I don't really recall what we talked about. Did he talk about you, or did he talk about himself? Probably about himself. End quote. McDonald actually gets called back to North Carolina to testify again, and he is not happy about it. Among his colorful second testimony is the lovely turn of phrase when admitting to having sex with a co-worker in 1964, quote, I balled the girl, big deal, she was a secretary, end quote. The grand jury deliberates and decides to indict. Siegel immediately begins filing motions to stop the proceedings. His first motion is based on double jeopardy. The prosecutor's podcast discussed this, and their essential conclusion is that you can be tried by the state and then still be tried for the same crime by the federal government and not have it classified as double jeopardy. So it can be done if two separate legal systems wish to engage. No one other than the judge who heard these motions has mentioned this, but my thought is that the Article 32 hearing is a hearing. It wasn't a trial, so double jeopardy isn't an issue at all because he's never been tried. Siegel also tries to get the charges dismissed, citing the right to a speedy trial. It's been five years since the crimes. Neither motion flies. McDonald appeals. The trial gets halted and eventually canceled. Yes, you heard me. The appeals court vacates the charges and overturns the original ruling. McDonald thinks he's free. The prosecution asks for the motion to be heard again. They will eventually take it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court took a year to even look at it, and honestly, it's a miracle they saw it at all. They announced they would hear the case on June 20th, 1977, and the arguments begin in January of 1978. And remember that 5-4 to four podcast, people? The Supreme Court sucks. In this case, however, it was an 8-0 to zero decision that the state courts were wrong and the trial should proceed. October 1978, the court in Raleigh upheld the Supreme Court's decision, 
and in March of 1979, the Supreme Court denied McDonald's request of appeal. That is, yes, an additional appeal. July 1979, McDonald flies to Raleigh to stand trial for the murders. And here we are, nine and a half years after the crimes, and Jeffrey McDonald is not daunted. He is going to get his innocence proclaimed from the rooftops, or at least from the pages of a book. Enter side left, one Joe McGinnis. Quote, I first met Dr. Jeffrey McDonald in Huntington Beach, California, on a hot, cloudless Saturday morning in June of 1979. He was living in a $350,000 condominium just off the Pacific Coast Highway, 50 miles south of Los Angeles and 10 miles from St. Mary's Hospital in Long Beach, where he served as director of emergency medicine. There were parking spaces for cars in front and boats in back, and Dr. McDonald had one of each. In his driveway, a rare Citroen Maserati with JRM-MD license plates and docked just behind the sliding glass doors of his living room, a 34-foot yacht, the recovery room. He was 35 years old, 5 feet, 11 inches tall, well-muscled and deeply tanned. He wore a tight-fitting, short-sleeved shirt. He had a strong handshake and a quick smile. There were gold rings on his fingers, a gold watch on his wrist, and a gold chain around his neck. His blonde hair was just beginning to turn gray. He took me to eat at a little restaurant just down the highway from where he lived. The Citroen Maserati handled the trip comfortably without being extended much past second gear. We sat at a large table outside surrounded by fresh flowers and hanging plants. The waitresses made a fuss over Dr. McDonald. He was apparently a regular, and he in turn administered hugs and dispensed free medical advice. He ordered for both of us, a lavish Los Angeles-style brunch. After the meal, Jeffrey McDonald took me back to his condominium. There was a jacuzzi just off his master bedroom, wall-to-wall carpeting, and a lot of glass. Glass-topped tables, sliding glass doors, a large mirror lining the walls. I had never before seen a home in which such a large percentage of wall space had been given over to mirrors. End quote. Shall I just assume y'all noticed the red flags of narcissism in that passage? Jesus Christ. There's more, but I think the meeting of Joe McGinnis and Jeffrey McDonald can be summed up with the following. Quote. A few days later, I received an invitation to a party. It had been sent by the Long Beach Police Officers Association. Dear friend, as you may already know, the time is drawing near for the trial of Jeffrey R. McDonald versus the U.S. A group of Jeff's friends has organized an effort to lend both financial and emotional support during this crucial time. We have planned a dinner, a dance, and a raffle as a means of showing our support. The date to remember is June 18th, a Monday. There will be a sumptuous gourmet dinner at Bogart's in Marina Pacifica beginning at 7 p.m. And to round out the evening, there will be a dance in Bogart's Disco beginning at 8 p.m. Tickets for the dinner are $100 per person, which includes admission to the disco. For those who are able to give more, there will be a golden circle table seating with Jeff for $500 per person, which also includes the admission to the disco. During the dance, there will be a lively auction of unusual one-of-a-kind items and services. Bring your checkbook. We will also draw and announce the winner of the Hawaiian vacation for two. The evening promises to be filled with good friends, good fun, and good feelings. So please circle June 18th on your calendar and help us send Jeff back to North Carolina on an emotional high. End quote. When I first heard this, I had to rewind because I thought that had to be a joke. And this comes at the beginning of the book before any of the other crazy shit is heard. His mother supposedly had to sell her house in order to pay his legal fees. He is wearing a Fort Knox level of gold and off on trips to Hawaii, and his friends are throwing a gala to pay for his defense. It's fucking surreal. Now you will need some time to absorb all that craziness. Next week, the trial! 
I do my best to be accurate, but it is just me and only me doing this pod, and I do make mistakes. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions, you can find me at Despecta, or a version thereof, on most of the things. I leave you with Three Dog Night. Yeah.